No one wants to be part of a church that is failing. We want to succeed. We want to see stuff happen. We want to be proud of our church. The problem is, when you talk about success and church, it's hard to know, like, what does success mean for church? We're not a a corporate corporation. We're not a, you know, a company that you can count the widgets on, although some people try and do that with church. Uh, We're not a sporting team that's aiming to win some kind of grand final. So what does success actually mean? I think it actually means, well, according to the Bible, fruit. It's... uh, That's a key performance indicator to use business language. Uh, We want to see evidence of conversions. We want to see people growing in their faith. We want to see people growing in godly character. We want to see our congregation members engaging in acts of justice in the community. We want to see um, uh, us us growing in numbers. We want to see our church fulfilling its vision. That's, That's fruit. Now, the thing with ministry, if you've been involved with ministry before, and it's, you know, this is, again, different to, I think, being in a business, maybe. Um, sometimes the fruit takes years. Um, I was reading the other day uh, an article by um, a missionary, an Australian mission, former missionary who now works up at Nungalinga College in Northern Territory that trains Indigenous people for life and ministry. His name's um, Phil Zemagius. And he pointed out um, that Western churches and Western people... Uh, Western Christians, like uh, they have all these resources to run their churches and all these resources to measure their churches. Um, but, but when you're doing ministry with indigenous communities, you need to look for success in different ways, he was saying. Um, he gave an example of him helping an illiterate man um, who didn't have Bible in his own language. Um, what does success mean for this kind of ministry, for example? How long should it take to show a satisfactory result? Well, in a similar way, um, as we measure ourselves at Mary Creek, we need to ask serious questions about what success looks like. Um, And we've got to be careful not to become impatient um, because I think where we are in in this part of Melbourne, in this kind of ministry that we're doing, we're in what you would call hard soil or Jesus would call hard soil, a place where people are offended and uh, irritated by biblical Christianity I um, was watching an ABC comedy panel show the other night and they were talking about how Justin Bieber was in town because he was going to the Hillsong Conference, of all things. He wasn't in town to perform. And they're having a good joke about this. Um, and fair enough, because Justin Bieber's a pretty funny guy. Um, and um, he'd been recently baptised in the bathtub of the pastor of Hillsong, New York. And I wonder, they were talking about, you know, is he, is he becoming a Christian just as a PR exercise? That was the question they were asking. But then they worked out that's probably not the best PR exercise if that was what he's doing. Maybe he's trying to clean up his act, they were saying. And then one of, the, one of the comedians on the panel said, when your friend who's an adult becomes a Christian late in life, it's like they've got braces. You sort of say to them, oh, that's great, well done, good on you. But then you stop being their friend. Harsh. I just was like sinking in my couch when I saw them. I could not laugh at this point. And it just reminded me, Christians are an easy target for mockery. And, you know, it made me think, how are we ever going to have an effective ministry in this kind of culture? You know, we need to just remind ourselves that we're not in a Christian bubble. We're actually a minority group. Not to be, you know, 
feeling persecuted necessarily, but just to go, this is reality in Australia. At least in China, India and Africa, if you were doing ministry there, I mean, you've got all kinds of different challenges there, but at least there are people that are open to spirituality and religion and spiritual systems. At least they don't have their Christian heritage to be in reaction against. Anyway, ministry and mission is difficult, isn't it? When we, especially when we face opposition and the opposition can look like all kinds of different things. In the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul starts by um, defending his ministry and his team's ministry um, despite experiencing all this kind of opposition that they faced in Philippi and Thessalonica. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Some of the worst opposition in Thessalonica happened from travelling preachers. In, in the, early, the time of the early church, there were these um, wandering apostles and, and evangelists and teachers and preachers uh, that were going from town to town and church to church. And some of them were good and some of them were not so good. And there were these people going to Thessalonica, attacking Paul, and trying to get the church in Thessalonica to think that he wasn't a real apostle and he wasn't a real um, leader in the church. Nevertheless, the ministry that Paul and Timothy and Silas achieved in, in this church survived and thrived. It grew and bore fruit despite all the opposition. So this morning we're going to look at... Um, why this is the case. Why did Paul's ministry succeed and, 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 and draw a reason um, or an application for ourselves at Mary Creek? Now, this is relevant because you, you might be thinking, well, I'm not likely to become a church minister, so why is this relevant to you? Um, it's relevant to all of us because we're all Christians and part of being a Christian is um, serving uh, people in ministry uh, trying to exercise our faith, being part of ministry teams, you'll be serving in some kind of way. You'll be part of a team and you'll be going, is this going well? Are we, are we doing well here? Are you part of our church? You've, you've joined in to be part of Mary Creek. You'll be asking questions about our church. Are we kicking the goals we're supposed to be kicking? We need to know what makes for a successful approach to ministry. We need to know how to bear fruit. fruit. The big idea that I think Paul tells us in this chapter is this. It's that Jesus is the archetype for fruitful ministry. Jesus is the archetype for fruitful ministry. He starts off by talking about character. He defends his ministry and his team's ministry by pointing to their character. In verses 3 to 7, he uh, puts a focus on what he and his companions did and he contrasts that. He says, look at how we weren't. Look at what we were not like. Uh, look at verse 3 as he deals with them. Um, he says, Our ministry wasn't based on error. It wasn't based on impure motives. It wasn't based on trickery or manipulation. But it was based on, it was offered as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he says in verse 4. See, some of Paul's attackers were philosophers, they were thinkers, and they critiqued his message and said, 
Uh, it's illogical. He hasn't really got a true message. It wasn't based on error. We weren't deluded. We were telling the truth. We knew what we were talking about. We were not trying to trick you with some wacky cult, says Paul. We knew what we were talking about. We were not trying to trick you with some wacky cult. On Tuesday night, our community group um, were talking about the um, SCOTUS decision about same-sex marriage. And one of the things we talked about was how it was clear that most of us in the room were not that good at using the Bible to argue our case. Um, and we were thinking about so many Christians, actually, if you ask them a question, think biblically, we're not good at doing that. We just don't know where to go. We don't know how to form an argument. Um, do you know how to discuss issues such as Christian marriage or other issues with biblical and intellectual rigour? When you're faced with ethical decisions, how do you think about them? Biblically, or, or do you use other kind of um, methods, or do you just kind of mash ideas together based on the vibe? Paul is saying in his defence that they were speaking the truth with intellectual rigour and an honest motive. There was no manipulation involved. If you read the New Atheists, they will often use the attack that Christians aren't intellectually rigorous enough and that we, are, we use dodgy arguments. Richard Dawkins once said in a lecture in Edinburgh, he said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, perhaps, because of the lack of evidence. And in an article um, called The Emptiness of Theology, he said, what has theology ever said that is of the smallest use to anyone? When was theology ever said, when, is, when has theology ever said anything that is demonstrably true and is not obvious? What makes you think that theology is a subject at all? And this has been going on for, for, for a few centuries. In the 19th century, Nietzsche wrote in his work, The Antichrist, he said, in Christianity, neither morality nor religion come into contact with reality at any point. This kind of thinking lies at the foundation of secularism's criticisms of our faith. Basically, it's illogical, people say. But this is not a new argument. This is not a new argument. 1 Thessalonians 2 shows us this. It's been going on for thousands of years. So we need to know our stuff. We need to speak clearly about our faith and have a good argument. Don't think that being articulate about articulate about your faith is only for intellectual Christians. All of us need to be lifetime learners of our faith. Read books, listen to talks, go to conferences maybe. God gives us minds to think with. He entrusts us with the gospel. He wants us to do our very best arguing our case. And this is part of what it means to base our ministry on the archetype of Jesus because Jesus spoke clearly and that he spoke the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Let's not be wafflers who get defensive when people challenge us. Let's be people of the truth who have good arguments and reason well. Well, Paul goes on and he says, they weren't, in verse 4, 4b, and also verse 6, he says, they weren't interested in winning a popularity contest with the people of Thessalonica, but we wanted to please God who tests our hearts. So speaking clearly and intelligently wasn't about looking good. It wasn't about having um, you know, the, the church, the Christians saying, oh, wow, this guy's impressive. In fact, Paul didn't care what they thought in that respect because he wanted to please God. 
pleasing God over people is something that cannot be seen by others. And so it's more significant for that reason. And he quotes Jeremiah 11 verse 20 and says, It is God who tests our hearts. God is all-seeing and all-knowing. We have an audience of one. As mainstream Australia closes um, in on, on the church and sort of or, or marginalises the church, probably a better way to put it, um, the temptation for us will be to compromise our faith and to say um, things that will just help us to fit in and be, be popular. Um, but we have to stand out. We can't blend in. Who's going to want to be part of a church that just looks like mainstream society? What's the point of being there? It loses its flavour. So fruitfulness, success in church, comes from not trying to please people, but trying to please God. He says in verse 6b that he didn't lord it over them as an apostle, but we were humble as little children. They didn't throw their weight around. Paul, Silas and Timothy, they, they had status in the church. They could have used their ecclesiastical cred just to tell everyone what to do, but they didn't. Because in the teaching of Jesus, the model of leadership that we get is a shepherd. A shepherd who doesn't lead by force, but defends, protects, rescues, I once preached a sermon at St. Hilary's called Jesus Was Not an Alpha Male. And uh, it was partly in response to models of leadership in the church that were being pushed, that were very aggressive alpha male styles of leadership. And in recent times we've seen that kind of alpha male strong, you're going to overlord you kind of leadership, those kind of leaders falling down. We must not exert over people like this, but rather be as humble as children, says Paul. And as a result, you've got fruitful ministry. So, so far, what Paul has been describing is how fruitful ministry occurred in Thessalonica because, he, because they had a Christ-like character modelled on Jesus. Jesus is the archetype, not based on error or trickery, but was truthful, not seeking popularity, but seeking God, pleasing God, not lording it over people, but being humble like little children. Then in verses 7 to 12, he talks about that Christ-like vulnerability. Look at verse 7, um, the end of verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we care for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Those other travelling false teachers who came and manipulated the church, they didn't really have a very strong relationship with the church. And so Paul is contrasting him and Silas and Timothy's relationship as being one of a genuine relationship where we actually gave you our whole lives and, uh, and nursed you like a mother. To use a kind of a phrase that I think sort of jumps out when you, when you read it. Um, these false teachers had no kind of meaningful relationship. We loved you so much, he says in verse 8. And they would have known if this is true or not. You know, the readers of this letter would have gone, yeah, he did. You know, or he didn't. We related to you with the humility and innocence of children, but we also loved you like a mother. I love the quote from Calvin, which I printed on the back of the booklet. It sort of seems a bit weird, but I think it's strong. A mother in nursing her children manifests a certain rare and wonderful affection, inasmuch as she spares no labour and trouble, shuns no anxiety, is wearied out by no assiduity, 
and even with cheerfulness of spirit, gives her own blood to be sucked. Mothers do give everything of themselves. They give everything initially, even in the birth process. My personal trainer, Jono, is about to have a baby. And he says that, um, you know, women, when they give birth in a normal kind of birthing situation, spend about the same kind of energy as doing a marathon. Sorry for all of you women who are about to have babies. That's kind of what it's like. And this process goes on through the years. You give your whole life to the child. I guess the question for us is, are you prepared to give everything to see our church bear fruit? Are you prepared to love people, the people who you minister with and to, like a mother? Look at verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. If we want our ministry to succeed, if we want it to bear fruit, we're going to have to start loving people with our whole lives, not just compartmentalise our relationships. And Paul's team geared themselves so that they could give everything to this little church plan. I'm intentionally uh, trying to exercise a kind of leadership here where um, we don't over-busy you with too much church activities And that's not so that you can busy yourself up with other activities, but so that you have time for people, time to invest in each other. All Paul wanted to do is remind them about the kind of relationship he had. This was his best defence. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, he's talked about being like children, talked about being like a mother, now he's talked about being like a father. (laughs) What's the complete picture? And he says, verse 11, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, there's no doubt in the ancient world the um, father was, this is a patriarchal society, and the father was uh, head of the family in this context, um, Aristotle once said, he wrote, the father is a kind of God to his children, a full head and shoulders above them, and rightly so, for the father is a king. It's not what I'm um, teaching today. But the point is, there's that imagery there of the ruler father, the, the kind of teacher in the family. But see, for Paul, father evoked this kind of emotion of pastoral devotion. This is what he sees here in verses 11 and 12. He's trying to show how seriously his team took the ministry. So this is all by way of talking about the vulnerability of Christ-like ministry. It has the passion and love, the whole body commitment of a motherly love. It has the pastoral devotion of fatherly love. And in total, verses 3 to 12 has shown us a fairly detailed picture of how fruitful ministry has Jesus as the archetype. It's based on the truth. Jesus is the truth, not based on error or trickery. It's modelled on Jesus in that respect. It seeks to please God, not people, just as Jesus lived to please his Father in heaven. It's humble like a child, again, like Jesus, who lowered himself to serve his people and called us to be like children to him. It's vulnerable with the intense love and devotion of the mother and father. There's a clear, clear connection here between the content of the gospel, isn't there, and the and the um, conduct of the people bringing the message. Uh, The two have got to be the same, or else it doesn't have any 
um, integrity. And this is a good checklist for us to think about for ourselves as personal people, but also as a group, how we're going as a church. This is how you see fruit. You base your ministry on the life and teaching of Jesus. But there's something more, and this is where I want to finish the talk, because part of um, having a fruitful ministry that's based on Jesus as the archetype is also uh, sharing in his suffering. We have to follow Jesus all the way. Verses 13 to 16 show that when we are a church who is with Jesus, there is a power at works that makes it work, that makes us come alive, and there is fruit that bears as a result. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. There's a power of God at work. This is what we talked about um, last week, isn't it? That the thing that changes us as Christians is the gospel. And when we're with Jesus, we have that happening. But then from verses 14 to 16, Paul praises them. Uh, this church in Thessalonica for their suffering. He says, Well done for being imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, when he says that they're in Christ Jesus, it's partly that he's just um, distinguishing them from other um, gathering or other assemblies. The word for church is actually the word as, which means assembly. And so he's just, he's just distinguishing them from maybe Jewish gatherings. But also, just as Christ was the suffering servants, so too did the church in Thessalonica take their faith so seriously that they suffered for their faith. They imitated the churches in Judea. They suffered from their own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews in Judea who participated in the killing of, of the Lord Jesus. The Thessalonians stood in a long and distinguished line of those um, uh, those in Palestine who were persecuted for their faith. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus himself, the earliest Christians, even Paul. And, and the passage here says that God's judgment will come down on those persecutors who drove out Paul and who don't please God and who, who are hostile to people because they are preventing the mission to the Gentiles. I think this is part of what disturbed me when I saw the joke about you don't be friends with your friend who becomes a Christian because I was just thinking about wonder what God thinks about that. Scary. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So what is the point here? If we want to share in Christ's glory by having fruitful ministry, we have to share in his suffering too. We have to be a church that is in Christ, into the point where we are modelled on him, we do what he does, we are driven by him, we are empowered by him. We have to live out the truth of Jesus. We have to live to please God, not people. We have to be humble like a child, be vulnerable with the intense love and devotion of a mother and a father, and boldly enter into suffering with Jesus and the persecuted church so that we can also share in his glory. Let's be a fruitful church. Let's pray.
Lord God, we pray that we will be a fruitful church and that we can um, strive to be like Paul and his team. Thank you for their devotion. Thank you for the church in Thessalonica who received the word and responded and were faithful despite the opposition. We pray for us at Mary Creek that in all our context, wherever we are, there'll be times when we feel really, um, yeah, on the edge, maybe marginalised for our faith, mocked. Even we might have friends who stop being our friend um, as we stand up for our faith. And we pray that um, you can give us strength at those times, that we can remember that we're here to please you, not please people. We have to love people with an intense love, we have to give our whole selves to people. And that we have to experience suffering if we've got to experience glory. Amen.